0: While you're turning there, let me just um, bring up a, a an interesting concept that you're not unfamiliar with, experience. Experience is a fascinating concept, and I'm not talking about skill, that's certainly one meaning of experience, I'm referring rather to that encounter, something that we undergo in a, an event or an occurrence, you know, that that situation that we observe, and and leaves an impression on us that's what i mean by experience every single human being has them many of them are unusual and are usual rather and common for all people sunrises sunsets chirping birds jury duty some are as unusual as meeting the king of england on a tour in the uk and others are as unique as Neil Armstrong's walk on the moon. Now, what's more, depending on the experience, there can be both a subjective and an objective element to experience. A sunrise, for example, is factual. It happens every day, whether you can see it or not. But my experience of this factual and real wonder may be different, quite different, in fact, from that of the next person's. Some people are in awe of sunsets, some are humbled by them, others impressed by the array of brilliant warm colors sweeping across the sky, and still others are, well, just plain angry when the light of dawn wakes them up. So in this case, there's no, there's no doubting the sunrise, it happened, it's objective, And there's no doubting the fact that they, these people, experience the sunrise. That, too, is objective. The only thing that we don't know, factually, of course, is how it made them feel and how it affects them. For that, we need to take their word for it. That's subjective. Now, personal experiences, as subjective as they may be, can be important events when we when they, rather, revolve around facts, and especially when the results of the experience can be measured. That's why the Bible assigns value to a Christian's personal testimony. That is very much an experience with both objective and subjective elements, and as I see it, more objective than subjective. What is objective about a Christian's con- or Christian conversion is that it, it's predicated on factual information that we call the gospel, right? So Jesus is gone. He obeyed the law perfectly. He died a substitutionary death on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sin. It was an acceptable sacrifice to God. Jesus was buried that he might conquer death by rising out, out of it, out of the grave. If you come to God then on the work of Christ alone, God will accept you. This is factual information. It's written, and of course it's verifiable, since it rests on historical fact as well about Jesus' life and his resurrection. The tomb was empty. Also, exercising faith in this information is also an objective component You see, faith, as the Bible describes it, is is as objective as fact is, since it is based on fact. Therefore, putting your life in Christ because he will save you is no different objectively than putting yourself in a chair because you believe it will hold you up. What is also objective about our conversion is the new life it produces— Just as the fruit of a tree is proof of its nature and that it is living, so the fruit of conversion is proof of new nature and new life. The only subjective element to a conversion experience, I would argue, is really the extent to which you personally knew sorrow, conviction, desperation, and love for Christ that the Bible says you would know leading up to trusting Christ as well as the elation that follows it all. Every born-again person experiences the same feelings, just to different degrees. Now, there is a tendency, you ought to know, on the part of some in the local church, to shy away from pointing to their conversion experience as a way to confirm the truth of the faith because there are plenty of secular people who have had life-changing experiences that made them different people as well. Also, well, what's the difference between their experience and our experience? Well, for one thing, the objective element of biblical, historical, and factual information regarding God incarnate is missing in their case. It's not there. For another, their experience comes with no guarantee that their new course in life will remain the same throughout their whole life. There's no guarantee. An orange tree will always produce oranges, a fig tree always figs, and a Christian always practices obedience to God. But secular life-changing experiences do not change for life There's no guarantee. People could have another life-changing experience five years later that drives them in a completely opposite direction. And finally, their life-changing experience is not universal. Now hear this. What I mean by this is that those who are gripped by some experience that changes them is not the same experience that even one other person, much less millions of other people will experience. But all Christians have the same conversion experience. Once I was blind, now I see no matter where or when or through what venue they all hear the same gospel are regenerated by the same holy spirit with uh, will at that point experience the the same sorrow conviction and desire to repent, uh, repent albeit in varying degrees they will all find god's grace irresistible they will all embrace the same christ with the same singular purpose to want to follow him right how does Paul say it? One body, one spirit, called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But there are millions of Muslims, you see, who believe the Quran and all practice the same rituals with the firm belief that they are right, not to mention Mormons and JWs and Buddhists, etc. Yes, but in those instances... In fact, in all religions, the change is completely external. They hear something they like, it affects their thinking and attitude, and they want it. But with Christianity, not one single person ever wanted to follow Christ, right? Not one. We're all at enmity With God, going our own way, shaking our fists in the air at Him as we go. Now, the conversion experience for Christians is completely internal, quite out of our control. God saves, and it happens. Now, you may say yes and amen to all of this, and you may have even felt quite at ease using your personal testimony to witness to Christ and the glorious salvation that He offers. Before the world, you've done so countless times, and that's terrific. I do it all the time. You say, great, you should. But have you ever appealed to a believer's testimony as a means of ministering to him, specifically a spiritually lazy Christian, with the purpose of calling him out of his spiritual torpor? Well, Paul does just that here with the Galatians. And we need to learn this effective approach when ministering to wayward Christians as well. And there's no better teacher than Paul. So let's take a look. Uh, Up to this point, we've seen how Paul defended the gospel of grace. He started with his personal testimony, and then he recounted uh, his confrontation with Peter, which led to some general remarks of the gospel. Now, at this point in the letter, he addresses the Galatians directly, which he hasn't done since chapter 1, verse 6. And he launches into this detailed theological defense of the gospel, apart from works of the law, from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 31. Two full chapters. His defense is a detailed elaboration on the general remarks that he made in chapter 2, verses 11 to 21, which we already covered. And more specifically, he makes detailed a detailed defense on several fronts, starting in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, with the Galatians testimony. We know how important and valuable a personal testimony is. We've just enumerated that. Paul explains here the facts of the Galatians' testimony now in an apologetic setting for their edification. And you probably have done something like this with somebody else before and probably never realized what you were doing. Like the time that you reminded someone who is having a hard time trusting some part of God's word. You said, but Paul, you trusted Christ for your salvation years ago, right? If you believed then that he, could, he was able to save your soul, then why wouldn't you believe that he is able to direct your way now? Or the time your Christian friend was doubting her salvation and you rehearsed with her her events of conversion. Now wait just a minute, Karen. I remember when you trusted Christ, you became a changed person. Or you, incur- your encouraging words to that member of the local church who was riddled with guilt, fearing that the Lord would not forgive her for this particular sin that she recently committed, Nancy, Nancy, the day you trusted Christ was the day He canceled your debts and forgave all your sins past present, and future. His death was sufficient. In the workforce, we call this going back to basics. And there are times when it's necessary to take a person back to spiritual basics. We we tend to complicate life, and, and we need someone to yank us out of our mess that we've created for ourselves and talk some biblical sense into us, starting at times with the simple truths of the gospel. Never underestimate them. And this is exactly what Paul does here with the Galatians. It is a masterful stroke on his part, and we can learn from this how he ministers to those in the church who who are starting to go south in their Christian walk. Paul defends the gospel of grace to the Galatians by appealing to their conversion experience. This is remarkable. Now, he will defend it from Scripture, but not until verse 6. We have a few weeks before we get there. Now, in this brilliant appeal to the Galatian salvation experience, Paul cleverly and deftly draws several logical and undeniable conclusions, which I have paraphrased as propositions, and we have time to examine only one this morning. And before we look at it, let's, let's set the tone. As with all good writing, Paul reminds his audience of his purpose for writing. He's rebuking them for their waywardness. Make no mistake. And we mentioned before, and it's worth repeating, that the Galatians were responsible for their erroneous direction. Oh, yes. Yes, they were responsible. Now, I understand they were being influenced by some crafty individuals, but in the end. God holds the Galatians responsible for their actions. As we go through the letter, it becomes very apparent that they also knew enough from Paul's teaching to discern the difference between the true gospel, the gospel of grace, and a counterfeit one. They knew this. So what happened? Well, they got lazy. That's what happened. Which led to their vulnerability. Make no mistake, their sinful course of action was their own fault. Now let me show you this from the text, okay? I want to prove this to you. The word Paul uses that our English Bibles translates foolish actually supports the fact that the Galatians were indeed responsible for their actions. Here's how. The Greek word itself does not refer to mental deficiency, but to mental laziness. There is a difference. The Galatians were not stupid. They were shamefully lazy. And that's Paul's meaning here. They were not thinking straight, and, and consequently, they allowed themselves to get sucked into the Judaizers' error. Paul uses this word to impress upon them just how negligent they had become. It's sort of a wake up call to them. Now, many in the church sadly. It's sad to say, don't really realize just how important it is that a wayward believer knows that he is responsible for his actions. Really? Yes. You see, our secular culture doesn't like to talk about responsibility, much less sin or guilt, right? Those terms are not part of the psychologist's vocabulary. A therapist would never conclude that his client is at fault... Offending clients is not part of their approach, and besides, it keeps paying customers from coming back. But God is honest with his own, and he tells us unashamedly when we are guilty of sinning and causing our own problems. So in your effort, beloved, to love <clears throat> and patiently rebuke someone who's taken a sinful course of action, this is one of two truths that you need to rehearse with him. Will, you're responsible for your sin, whether he sins willfully or out of ignorance, exposing him to bad influences, trusting the wrong people, doesn't matter. He's still the one who makes the choice and commits to it. We explain to him that that we're always responsible for our actions, We cannot blame our sin on others, God will surely hold those accountable who sinfully influence us, yes, but we're always responsible for our own actions nevertheless. Okay, I got it. But you said that this is one of two truths that our wayward believing brother needs to know. What's the other one? It's the twin truth that brings hope. You can do something about it. That's the other truth. If you are responsible for it, you can change it. Isn't that hopeful? In fact, God's method says that we can solve our problems just as easily as we created them, and perhaps even quicker, if it calls for repentance and godly change. Here's the method, God's method for rectifying problems that are the result of our sin. See the situation for what it is our sin for what it is, that's confession, repent, ask God for forgiveness, learn from scripture how not to sin, this same sin over again, and then train yourself in the area of your weakness to champion God's righteousness. Now this method is not always easy, but beloved, it is surely not complicated. And you can do it. J. Adams used to say, never say can when God says you can? How wonderful is it to know that we're not stuck with our sin? Right, that's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. By the way, it's not that we're somehow superior to them or whatever. Absolutely not. We were depraved. We deserve condemnation. God saved us in His love. We are humbled by it. The difference is we know what to do with sin. That's the difference, and it's an important difference. And it's, it's helpful to know that we don't, or we're not stuck with a disorder, we're not stuck with a disease that we have to live with with the rest of our lives and manage with some kind of medication, or that it's imposed on us by someone else who, confronts our, who controls our situation. How liberating is this news for any downtrodden child of God who is heavenly burdened by sin in his life? Well, it is wonderful news. It's so liberating. It's liberating once he knows that he can do something about it, about his sin, and consequently fix the problems that he created by his sin. He tangled himself up in it, and with God's help, he can untangle himself. And you're going to help him. That's the hope that belongs to all of us. And so in this passage, Paul lets the Galatians know of their responsibility for their sin by calling their actions foolish. Twice, in five verses, once in verse 1 to start it off, and again in verse 3. Oh, but isn't that harsh? I mean, it, it, is it really necessary? Okay, so they made some foolish choices, but is it helpful to state the obvious? The answer to the questions there is a resounding yes. Resounding yes. I remember a long time ago, uh, talking to somebody in the church who didn't think that it was necessary to point out a person to point out to a person in an evangelistic context that he was a sinner. I kid you not, this is this is what he believed. That's <coughs> obvious. He knows that. Why beat a dead horse? It only hurts your chances of winning him over. That was the that was the uh, the argument. By the way, this person also thought that repentance was not part of the gospel. So that kind of makes sense for him. The answer back to that dangerous kind of thinking is, first of all, that repentance is absolutely necessary, no question. And before repentance, confessing that you are indeed a sinner is likewise important. You need to call what you do what it is. You need to agree with God that it's a sin and that you are a sinner. People need to know that they have offended a holy God and that they should be disturbed about that fact. Second of all, never, ever assume that they know that they're sinners. Never assume that it's obvious to them in fact assume that they know absolutely nothing at all about spiritual truth that way you're sure to cover everything and as you discover what they know then you can speed up the process but never assume and you should also know that the person who was uncomfortable telling someone that he is a sinner was not because of a theological reason now he was influenced by the the pc community Now, I can tell you for sure that what Paul tells the Galatians here was not obvious to them. They were confused in their thinking. They had become confused is a better way to put it. So Paul's rebuke was very needed, and he called them foolish, and he was giving them an accurate assessment of their actions and at the same time waking them up. I know the practice in America at the moment is to accept all worldviews and all walks of life as created equal and never question anyone's actions, must much less rebuke anyone. We know that, right? The elites who currently rule our country actually enforce this lenient practice and have successfully propagated the view through public conscience that correcting someone or challenging someone is absolutely unlawful unless of course they're judging you because you disagreed with their practice which means canceling you and charging you with heavy fines and possibly incarcerating you. Did you get that? It's not okay to challenge the validity of their practices or of those who support it but it's Fine for them to question you. Secular ideolo- ideologies always are self contradictory and at some point wind up undermining themselves, don't they? Now, I want to digress for a moment, just for a moment, and speak to one way in which that current outrageous practice that we just described, this false acceptance, actually works its way into the church. And that is through young converts to Christ who grow up with it. I I wanted to take a few uh, minutes and digress just to point this out because I think it's worth mentioning. Young converts who grow up in all of this kind of mess, in this America that we didn't grow up in, they will bring it into the church once they're brought to saving faith in Christ. Make no mistake about that. Why Well, conversion remedies one one 's eternal condemnation it doesn 't make him instantly mature uh, and knowledgeable of all doctrine and all applications of doctrine right that 's something they have to grow into, so they may be genuinely saved, but they drag into the faith lots of baggage and bad thinking and behavior which we need to rectify with the word of god so whatever they 've seen they 've been steeped in will follow them and certainly their view of interpersonal relationships that they may have learned from society will follow them which is not to judge, not to rebuke, not to question, just to accept and unless they're retaught the biblical truth regarding the importance of correction more and more churches will be run by tomorrow's leaders who resist any biblical practice of local church that calls for accountability you see that? like church membership, the necessary practice of one another, and especially church discipline. All of that is gone. They don't understand the value and hope that biblical correction brings. The church certainly has its work cut out for it as it goes forward, no question. Now, getting back to the flow of thought regarding rebuke, it may be out of fashion in our country, but it is a responsibility of God's people. We're not surprised then that Paul gives it, and it's biting. He does it not once but twice in just five short verses. But I want to assure you that biblical rebuke that God commands, and Paul, Paul's rebuke here is for the best interest of the one being rebuked. You've got to be convinced of that. Rebuke is correction. And why wouldn't we want to help believers in the body away from error and potential hurt? Do we not want to help them in that area? With, with that in mind, just a few points about rebuke I think is important. We could say a lot more, but it doesn't mean name-calling, just so you know. Okay? Rebuke is not name-calling. Calling somebody stupid or worse neither helps the situation or has the person's best interest in mind. Also, rebuke is not a license for cursing someone out either. James 3.9 tells us not to curse one made in the image of God. To keep it simple, speed this up a bit, any rebuke you give needs to fit the guidelines of Ephesians 4.29. Here's what it says. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But if there is any a good word for edification according to the need of the moment... Say that so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, by the way, that verse is set in a context of arguing. So if you ever want to know the right and correct biblical way to argue, that's it right there. And that's the way we rebuke somebody. We point out to the believer that his activity and choices are fool- are foolish or hypocritical for that matter, and neither... neither uh, uh, exp, um, explanation, whether we're, we're saying it's foolish or we're saying it's hypocritical, is unwholesome or untrue. But it can actually be very helpful for a person to know that he's a hypocrite or that he's foolish if he listens to you. If a believer is offended by the fact, these sobering truths about himself, that he's a hypocrite or that he's foolish, then hypocrisy and foolishness are the least of his problems. He's got a fair amount of pride ruling in his heart as well. Furthermore, in accordance with Ephesians 4.29, if we rebuke, we are correcting with all love intact, then there should be no question on the part of the one that we rebuke that we love him and we have his best interest in mind. That person has got to be convinced of that. The foolishness that Paul attributes twice to the behavior expresses his deep concern for them as well as exasperation over it. He, he'll he express it again later in chapter 4, verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and to change my tone of voice for I am at a loss about you. Right? In essence, he says, I, what, what am I going to do with you guys? We can better relate to Paul's exasperation with the Galatians when we understand that the Galatians could have prevented their slide into error if they were diligent about keeping doctrinally sharp. This is why Paul's so exasperated. This didn't have to happen. I mentioned that Paul's word foolish does not mean mentally impaired or stupid, but rather mentally lazy. They allowed themselves to be pulled away from doctrinal center, From sound apostolic teaching, like a boat that slips its mooring and it's set adrift. You ever been in a boat that drifts? If you have, then you know that it's subject to the prevailing current, right? And if the current is slow enough, then the drift is, well, nearly imperceptible. First, it's an inch at a time, then a couple of feet, then eventually yards. But it's not until you look back and you see the buoy that you were tethered to that you realize just how far you've drifted. Wow. Same is true of our spiritual lives. A believer who slips his sound biblical mooring can get caught in a slow-moving current of error. His drift is usually imperceptible to him at first, so he becomes used to where he is relative to where he was anchored. Oh yeah? The farther away from doctrinal center he gets, the longer uh, 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 and longer he's carried away by his current error, the more comfortable he becomes with it the more accepting of the small differences that come incrementally and imperceptibly. He needs someone to point him back to the direction of his mooring. If he would be be shocked by the great change in his direction and then uh, convicted about rowing back in a hurry. Paul points them back to their conversion for this very reason, do you see how far you've, gone? you've come in the wrong direction? We might understand how subtle error creeps in to change our thinking with an illustration of aging. <laughs> Funny thing about aging, it's a slow process, right, that's imperceptible to us. And it becomes apparent to us only after long periods of time that we've aged. Isn't that Interesting. We live with ourselves every day. We see the same image of ourselves in the mirror for years, or so would it seem. The smallest changes that take place over, uh, to our vis- visage are imperceptible to us. And after a few years, we, we <coughs> might notice, hmm, might notice a little line or maybe a deeper wrinkle. But on the whole, we look the same we did 20 years ago. Then we see an old photo of ourselves from 20 years ago. And we're astonished at the difference. Skin was a bit tighter then. Had a fuller look. Not as drawn or hollowed as I am now. Hmm. And our eyes, the, the eyes, well, it's as if they lit up brighter then. Old age creeps up. It's stealthy. It robs us of our youth a little at a time, ever so slightly, imperceptibly, until the change becomes painfully apparent to us after somebody shows us what we used to look like 20, 30, 40 years ago. How did this happen without my noticing it? We get used to small changes little by little, you see. Now someone who doesn't live with you notices the change immediately upon seeing you again, especially after a long period of time. And that's because his recollection of you was the way you looked the last time he saw you. He wasn't subject to the gradual change over time as you were. A departure from truth, beloved, into error can be practically imperceptible, much like a boat that's drifting or aging. It's a life, it's a, it's a little at a time, you don't realize it, you start to be comfortable from, with where you are relative to where you were, and you believe that it's where God would have you to be. Yikes. John used to be so aggressive, so tenacious about his Christian walk. John's not here, so I'll talk about him. <laughs> You never know who, you know. You, you pick a name, hopefully, hopefully, it doesn't, you know, have the, no one has the same name, as, et cetera. And it's okay. Holy Spirit knows who needs to hear. John apparently doesn't because he's not here. <laughs> he, was a, he was a warrior, and he was in the fight. Ordinary means of grace kept him fit. Daily communion with the Lord in prayer, daily devotional reading in the Word, weekly personal Bible study, practicing his spiritual gifts in the local church, serving others, regularly worshiping with the body, taking part in the Lord's Supper, fellowshipping one another. And then he departed from sound orthodoxy. Oh, not right away. It was a little at a time. The changes were imperceptible he eventually became comfortable where where he was at each increment. You see, pressures of life started crowding in and put a strain on his spiritual regimen. Prayer was the first to go. It always is. His communion with the Lord became irregular. And then his devotional life, less consistent. His personal weekly one-hour Bible study dwindled to a couple of 10-minute meditations a month. His priorities shifted, forcing him back out of his responsibilities in local church ministry. Communion with the saints became practically non-existent. No, No one anothering to speak of. Church attendance became spotty. And that was just the first year. It would be the start of a bad trajectory because he was out of the loop He compensated, as we all would, by listening to messages online, which were not compatible with the church's pulpit ministry. He fed himself incorrect teaching. One of the podcast speakers recommended a a series by some Christian psychiatrist on an issue that this man happened to be grappling with at the time, and so he ordered it. Instead of availing himself of the church's shepherding and counseling ministry, he turned to these integrationists who offer a theology to go mixed with secular teaching and and he began to apply it because he he had been fooled into thinking that it was right and good. It's now been 2 years for John since his departure from orthodoxy. He's fully outgrown the ordinary means of grace. His armor is dull and dusty from non-use. He's gotten used to following his whims and intuitive promptings, listening for God's audible voice and looking for signs to determine God's will instead of going to Scripture like he used to. John's not the Christian he once was. He's moved far from doctrinal center, and it will take another godly saint to reveal this to him and shake him awake from his spiritual torpor. You. If you are successful, it means that you have led him to see just how far from grace he has fallen. (coughs) You appeal to his testimony gospel basics, to that tender time of his spiritual youth, when he loved Christ and his word and was zealous. Galatians had drifted into a works-based faith, which was what they were used to as pagans, it's what they came out of, so they resonated, of course, with the Judaizers' gospel of law. And it became, it, it's because they moved so far off center that they had no discernment. They were out of practice when it came to evaluating what they saw and what they heard by apostolic truth. So they were led astray by what only seemed right to them in the, weak, in the weakened condition that they were spiritually. They were like infants, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. Perfect example. We come then to the first proposition. Christians who are doctrinally weak lack discernment and are easily led astray. In plain sight of the truth... Christians who are doctrinally weak, lack discernment, and are easily led astray in plain sight of the truth. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, Paul asks. The phrase, who was publicly portrayed as crucified, is a graphic one. The Greek term publicly portrayed is prographo. Why do you need to know that? Well, because literally it means to write beforehand. It doesn't refer to prophecy here. There's no idea of prophecy in this context. Rather, its more common use in secular Greek during Paul's time was with the idea of to broadcast something publicly, to announce something publicly as on a placard for all to see. A placard is a sign that one puts on a wall. The Romans would often publicize important information this way, for all to see. Paul borrows this concept, this very familiar concept, to say that he preached Jesus and him crucified so vividly and precisely to the Galatians, it was as if the crucified Lord was on display for them. Paul told them that Jesus' death not only saved them but has ongoing effects to keep them saved. You can see why then Paul was so exasperated that the, G- the Galatians had started looking to the law for salvation and for sanctification. Robert Longnecker summarizes Paul's state of mind in his commentary at this point. He says, quote, For Paul, the gospel of Christ crucified so completely rules out any other supposed means of being righteous before God that he finds it utterly incomprehensible for anyone who had once embraced such a gospel ever to think of supplementing it in any way end quote. "i think he's right to Paul the galatians the galatians 180 turn back in the wrong direction could only be explained in terms of being spellbound the greek word translated bewitched was used in the first century to refer to magic spells and sorcery, but Paul is not using it in that literal way. He's using it figuratively, figuratively, much in the same way that you and I would today, when we want to talk about how somebody was heavily influenced by something else. The Galatians were spellbound by the Judaizers' message. They'd been wooed in a bad direction, though. False teachers were convincing. They knew how to use their rhetoric to grip someone emotionally and woo them to their position of salvation and justification by works of the law. And the Galatians bought it. We might pause here to remind ourselves of the truth of 1 Corinthians 15.30. Bad company corrupts good behavior. Congregations in Asia Minor where John was pastoring were taken captive by bad influence of Gnostic teachers offering a superior faith on the basis of their spiritual knowledge. Congregations swallowed it hook, line, and sinker, and consequently they were devastated. In 2 Peter, Peter addresses similar sinful influences for his congregations as well, and Paul almost lost the church at Corinth to the influence of false teachers that appealed to what the Corinthians were used to before conversion, selling religion, flashy oratory. And the influence of the false teachers was so bad in the second half of the first century that Jude changes his purpose for writing to his church and in mid-sentence warns them to beware of this dangerous influence. And then the Lord Jesus Christ calls six churches in Revelation to repent for tolerating influential false teachers among them. Beloved, Scripture is pretty clear that we need to be renewed in our minds by the Word of God and not be conformed by the world. That is our responsibility. Paul's presentation to the Galatians of the crucified Christ was so vivid There was no denying its reality, this truth. But, and here's the bottom line, they were so doctrinally weak, so lazy, so dull, and lacking in discernment, that they were easily influenced and led astray in plain sight of the sign, in plain sight of the truth. And that can still happen today, and it does, to a great degree. No matter who we are, no matter where we are, no matter where we are in our walk with Christ, we have to be careful. And we have to be on the alert and aggressive in our practice of the ordinary means of grace, so that we can not only... Keep ourselves staying the course. But we can help others to stay the course as well.